Think of someone that you would never talk to. For each of us, that picture in our heads is probably different. With that person in mind, ask yourself this question. Does that person need Jesus? The answer is obviously yes. He needs Jesus. She needs Jesus. But we come up with all sorts of reasons not to engage with people who seem to us to be unlikely converts. John 4 flies in the face of our excuses. In this chapter, Jesus didn't talk with the religious elite like he did in John 3 with Nicodemus that we looked at two weeks ago. In this chapter, Jesus talks with a woman who is religiously and ethnically isolated, who was rejected even by her own people for her sinful lifestyle. Despite all of these reasons, Jesus modeled for us this truth. Seek the unlikely by engaging with them spiritually. Seek the unlikely by engaging with them spiritually. The first part of this, I think, is seen in verses 1 through 6. Seek out the unlikely. And obviously, the unlikely is a matter of our assessment because all of us are unlikely in one sense. All of us are sinners. All of us desperately need God. And no matter how much truth we have been taught, unless we have believed in Jesus, we're all still desperately lost in need of God's grace. But from a human perspective, seeking out those who are unlikely is what we see in verses 1 through 6. It's important to note from the first two or three verses that opposition from the self-righteous can give opportunities for the unrighteous. Here's what I mean by that. It's easy for us to be discouraged if it seems like somebody is rejecting the truth about Jesus we're trying to share with them. And oftentimes, the people that we're talking to have some degree of church background. Not always, but often. We see this, for example, in this passage. We see this in Paul's experiences, he would go into the synagogues and try to preach to the Jewish people, and then the Jewish people would reject, and he would go to the Gentiles, the ones that they deemed unworthy, unlikely converts beyond God's help. Many of them would turn and believe when the religious people had rejected the message. And that doesn't mean that none of the religious people were saved, or that you and I should never talk to religious people. But there is this, humanly speaking, huge barrier of those who believe themselves to be religious to think, I don't need God because I try to be a good person. I pray prayers. I give money to help people. So in what way could I possibly be considered a sinner who needs God? That was the attitude of the religious leaders in verse 1. They're jealous of Jesus because they want to be the center of attention. They want to be the focus of what the people do in worship. And to the extent that they believe that Jesus is baptizing followers, when in fact it was his disciples, but nonetheless, people associated with Jesus were baptizing followers. They saw that as taken away from their position and their power. And so they were very jealous of Jesus. And so Jesus because the time had not yet come for his confrontation with them, goes away back up to Galilee. Seeking out the lost, we see from these next few verses, verses 4 through 6, is a deliberate choice, especially when you're tired. It says in verse 4, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Now, geographically, it's the shortest route to get from Judea to Galilee to pass through Samaria, which was to the almost due north. Uh, but many times people would go east and go around Samaria because they didn't want to go through there. And so when it says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria, there is, I believe, in this passage, as many have pointed out in commentaries and books on the subject, there is a sense of divine appointment. Jesus 
had to pass through not just because it was the shortest route, but because he was meant to meet this woman at this well at this time and, and point her to what God was doing. He goes to a place of historical significance, a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. He was worn out, but he sat in a place where he was likely to encounter someone. He could have gone into town and found a place to sit uh, in perhaps a more quiet corner away from the crowds. He could have realized that anybody who comes to the well in the middle of the day, how many of you try to do yard work in the middle of the day if you can get it done in the morning? If you can get it done in the morning or in the evening, that's a much better time to do it. But if you come to do work in the middle of the day, it's probably because nobody else wants you around and that's the only time that you can do it. And that seems to be the case for this woman. She comes in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, when it would have been a much better time to be working at home or resting, she comes in around noon. Jesus is sitting there, worn out from his journey, but not so worn out that he refuses to minister to her needs. So when a likely candidate for conversion says no to Jesus, you might think that your witnessing efforts are a waste. But in those moments when we are particularly tired or discouraged because all this effort we poured into something seems to have failed, God often uses us to reach unlikely people with the gospel. That will, however, not happen in the way God intends if we approach people with an attitude of superiority. Look instead how Jesus, in verses 7 through 14, chose to connect as equals. When I say connect as equals, I don't mean that he being God and she being a human woman were actually equals. But in the manner that he approaches her, he doesn't come to her and say, I'm a Jew and you're a filthy, unclean Samaritan, or completely ignore the fact that she's even there, which is what people would have sometimes done. Instead, he engages with her and he speaks to her. In connection with this idea of connecting as equals, don't avoid someone just because everyone else does. Jesus knew that she was a Samaritan and a woman, which in their culture were, were two negative marks against her. Uh, because she was a Samaritan, she was part of a group of people whose religion had corrupted and rejected the true faith that God had laid out for the people of Israel. These were remnants of the people who had intermarried with the Assyrians who conquered the 10 northern tribes of the nation of Israel. These were people who, in continuing the pattern of Jeroboam, their king, who had led people away from God, had established a false system of worship in Samaria in opposition to God's purpose for his people. Being a Samaritan was a negative mark against her. And being a woman was a negative mark against her, not because in God's way of working in the world, women are less than men, but in their culture, they were definitely viewed as less than men. And particularly, they were viewed as a risk for becoming unclean. And particularly, the fact that she was a sinner meant that she was unclean. And so what business did he have talking with her if she's a Samaritan and a woman and a sinner. And yet he makes a simple request to connect with her. Give me a drink of water. Now, in our minds, perhaps this could sound somewhat demanding, right? Stranger comes up, hey, give me some food. Hey, give me some water. Hey, go make me a sandwich. Like we, we, we associate that kind of request or expectation as being in some way selfish. But that's not how I think it was for Jesus. This was an opportunity. He saw her doing something, and, and he's saying, 
Give me a drink. He's engaging with her in a way that he knew was going to surprise her, in a way that he knew she was going to question, in a way he knew was going to start a conversation. The reality is we live in a a world that is increasingly isolated from human contact. You go to Kroger or Meyer, there's a self-checkout, and there's the one person standing behind the little desk, and if you have a problem, they come over and talk to you. I'm not saying that you should deliberately create a problem so that they come talk to you. However, if you do have a problem, see it as an opportunity, if they're not busy helping someone else right after you, to engage with that person, even if it's just a really brief, hey, how's your day going, something like that, because the reality is people in those jobs are treated as worthless by the nature of the job and by the people who they're supposed to be helping. And in the same way, well, not in the same way, but in somewhat of a parallel, Jesus could have gone and gotten a drink out of the well himself, right? It's not as though he was incapable of doing so. But asking this woman if she would serve him in this way by giving him a drink of water engaged her and forced a conversation that otherwise would not have taken place. As we might expect, she questions his motives because of ethnic and religious background. How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? And in the, the, the gospel understatement that we see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the book of Acts, Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. It was a little bit worse than that. They actively tried to avoid them. They saw them as worse than nothing. Have no dealings with them, I think, in our minds is sort of like, I really don't want to spend time with you today because I'm worn out and tired. This was, I actively tried to avoid you. I wish that you would die. Like that kind of an attitude is, is the way that they treated people. And so she's shocked in some respects that Jesus would speak to her and ask her for something because if she is a Samaritan and a woman and unclean because of the sin that he knows about, as is clear later, then for him to receive water from her is to make himself ceremonially unclean. Not sinful, but ceremonially unclean. And why would he stoop to do that? Because he cared about her soul. So in connecting as equals, don't avoid someone just because everyone else does, but also there is a movement that we need to make from the obvious or the physical to the profound or the spiritual. Jesus reverses her expectations. I ask you for a drink, but you should ask me. Now, we're not Jesus. We're not God. So in the end, when you and I have these kinds of conversations, we're not supposed to be pointing, our, pointing people to us. We're supposed to be pointing them to God. So it's not, will you help me with this thing? Hey, let me give you this thing of myself, which is what Jesus is saying. It's something along the lines of, would you do this for me? I have something to give you that is from God. That's the nature of what it is that we are offering to people in our conversations. That same kind of reverse of, yes, you can help me in a genuine, practical way, but God can help you more. Why? God has what you really need. Now, this gets tricky because people misuse this. They'll say, hey, you know what? Your life's not going well. You don't have enough money in your bank account. People don't like you as well as you would hope. God can make that better for you. That's not the point of what Jesus is doing here. What he is doing here is saying, God has what you really need. You think that you need a way to have water every day. And she's going to make that clear throughout this exchange. I need a way to make my life easier. 
And Jesus says, you need forgiveness. You need eternal life. You need a relationship with God that starts to work at fixing all these broken relationships you've had throughout your life with all of these other people. That's what you actually need. And that's the thing that when we present the gospel, we have to share with people, not Jesus will come into your life, wave a magic wand, you'll be rich, you'll be happy, you'll be famous, you'll be beautiful, you'll be powerful, you'll be whatever. That's the way that we're tempted to present the gospel. God is powerful, so he can fix the mess of your life. While it is true that God can do that, uh, I was having a conversation yesterday, and we were talking about the fact that sometimes what we want to pray for is for God to make life better from a human perspective. What God actually wants to do is deal with our sin and make us holy, not to make us happy from a human perspective. And so we're tempted to not say that to people because if I come to someone, I say, your life is a disaster and God is maybe going to make it harder for you, but you will have eternal life. We're like, that is not a very marketable message. But to the extent that we can point people to the fact that their present circumstances are a result of sin and God has the answer to sin and that God has helped us because we have been sinners as well and continue to deal with that. And that doesn't mean that life has been easier, but that God is at work accomplishing his purpose for which he made us to the extent that we are fulfilling the purpose for which God made us, anticipating the future for which God intended us, and we can share that with other people. God can use that to encourage and bless them as well. The woman questions, are you really greater than Jacob? There's a well, and I have the bucket, so how are you going to give me water? Are you greater than Jacob? I mean, Jacob dug the well, so maybe you're greater than Jacob, and you can dig your own well. Maybe you can seek out another water source and give me water that isn't from this well, and I can't see that, but to me at the moment, this doesn't make any sense. Which is interesting, because that's kind of the response that Nicodemus had, too. Except we expected Nicodemus to know better. He knows all these things about the Bible, about the Old Testament law. He should be able to anticipate what Jesus is saying. And yet here, Jesus uses her immediate physical need to move to her more important, essential, spiritual need. And his answer is essentially, yes, absolutely, I am greater than Jacob. He makes that clear in verses 13 and 14 that God offers a long-term solution, not a temporary one. Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. And God offers a solution for your greatest need, for sin being dealt with so that you can receive living water, eternal life, forgiveness, and then share that with others. Verse 14. So if we seek out the unlikely and connect with them as equals... We will get further in our conversations, but the reality is usually at this point they're going to throw up obstacles to the message of the gospel. In those moments, like Jesus does in verses 15 through 26, we need to keep going when the conversation gets hard. We talked about this on Wednesday nights, but I think it's a, in this passage we see it very, very clearly. We need to first of all be patient when someone's confused about spiritual realities. The woman wanted water so she didn't have to come to the well anymore. She says, in response to, he will never thirst but have a well of life springing up into him, which if she had any acquaintance with the Old Testament, she probably didn't. 
to the extent that they tended to reject large swaths of the Old Testament and to the extent that she probably would have been isolated from people teaching her the truth of the Bible. But if she had known it, Proverbs says things like, guard your heart carefully for from it are the springs of life. There are many other places where there's the imagery of water and God's work in someone's life. And so when Jesus says, God wants to work in your life and make you a spring of living water through whom his power is working, and she says, you know what? It'd be really nice not to have to walk here every day at noon. It could have been that Jesus became impatient and rejected what she said and, and pushed her aside. But instead, he keeps going. He engages her in a different line of discussion to point out what her real problem was. That it wasn't really physical thirst. It was the sin that was plaguing her life. He says, go call your husband and come here. The next idea here, don't let someone shy away from difficult topics. Difficult topics like sin, death, eternity, those are the ones that sometimes people don't want to talk about, right? People have said, what should you not discuss with people you don't know very well? Religion and politics, right? What is Jesus discussing with her here? Both. Not so much the politics because he brought it up, but because she brought it up and he addresses it briefly. The woman starts out and says, well, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you know what? You're technically speaking the truth, but you're practically lying. You're dodging my question, right? You don't have a husband because you divorced the first five and the one you're with now is not your husband. You've had five. The one you have now is not. This you have said truly. So I know what you've said is true, but you've left out a lot of really important details. What's her response? She changes the subject and addresses Jesus as a prophet. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Oh, you caught me. Okay. We need to next stay the course even when someone tries to distract you. The woman says, hey, by the way, since you're a prophet, let me ask you this question that's been an argument among your people and my people for generations. Oftentimes this happens when we're talking with people about important spiritual truths and we'll say something like, the fact that you're a sinner means something has to be done about it and they'll be like, you know what? What about the fact that Israel is in their land and, and the controversy that's going on with the Palestinians? What about the fact that there's that weird verse that in the Old Testament says you're not supposed to wear clothes with two different kinds of fabrics and you're not obeying that? Or do you eat shrimp? You know, what, do you eat pork? You don't believe the Bible. People will throw up these obstacles that have nothing to do with their immediate need and everything to do with a supposedly clever way on their part to stump you and get you to go away. Now, it's hard to know how antagonistic or emphatically she was doing this. But there is a degree to which she's at least throwing up a little bit of a roadblock to what Jesus is saying. What about this religious controversy? So here's, I think, a good lesson for us to learn. Jesus answers it and moves right back to the point that he was already making. What does he say? Woman, believe me, an hour is coming and now is when neither this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. There's a day coming pretty soon when it doesn't matter. So this controversy that's been this huge point of contention between you and the people of Israel, because of who you're talking to, because of what's about to take place, it won't matter. 
because of what's about to take place in the near future. When the temple gets knocked down, it won't matter because your temple is going to be wrecked and their temple is going to be wrecked and God doesn't need a temple in the first place. So the question is, are you worshiping God? Verse 23. But in between, he says, verse 22, you worship what you don't know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. There's coming a day when it won't matter. The Jews are right in this moment, but that's not really the point. God wants true worshipers in spirit and in truth. He is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. I think in this statement, he is saying, you may not feel like there's any place or possibility of you going down the temple in Jerusalem. But if you will worship God truly, there's a way for you to worship him even here and now in this moment. The Israelites are correct. If you want to know who's right in the theological, political, historical debate, they are right. God did say this is how it's supposed to be. But to the extent that the Messiah is coming and everything is changing, it won't matter. She then seems to test his words. To the degree that someone tests your words, point them to God. She seems to test Jesus with this indirect statement, I know that Messiah is coming. When that one comes, he'll declare all things to us. People have seen varying degrees of faith in her statement here, whether it is, uh, could you be the one? Or whether it is, uh, well, you know, when he comes, he'll sort it out. And how can we know, you know, like a statement, sort of uh, like an agnostic kind of statement. Well, we can't really know, at least right now. Which is really interesting because in Genesis chapter 28, Jacob does a similar thing. Genesis 28, let me just read this for you. When he's at this well, where he's at this place where he meets with God, he departed and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and spent the night there and he has the vision of the ladder going up to heaven. And God says, I will be your God. I will be with you. And then in the end of the chapter, he says at Bethel, if God will be with me and keep me on this journey and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. God, take care of my physical needs and then I'll worship you. What has the woman just got done doing? Take care of my physical needs. Make it so I don't have to come to the well anymore. I'd be willing to follow you if you do that. Jesus points her to God, to himself as God. And I think the, the translations do a disservice in verse 26 where they add the word he at the end of the phrase. Jesus says, I who speak to you am. Jesus is claiming to be God. I am the Messiah. I am God. I am the one who has come that you've been waiting for. What's the next point from the passage? The verses we didn't read yet, verses 27 through 42. Watch God work. Connect with the unlikely. Engage with them on their level as, as equals, not as you being somehow superior. Keep going when the conversation gets hard. Watch God work. People around you may not understand your priorities if you take this approach. Verse 27, his disciples came. They were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek or why do you speak with her? Verse 31, 
Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. We went and bought food. Now the food is here. Now it's time to eat. Why are you talking to this woman? We're not really sure we should ask you that. But if nothing else, we're going to say, hey, it's time for lunch. Their priority was food. Their priority was propriety according to their expectations. And let's be honest, that's our priority a lot of times, right? Doing what we think people expect of us or will approve of and satisfying the desires that we have on a temporal level for food and shelter and all those sorts of things. The disciples are shocked by who Jesus talks to. They urge him to eat, but he explains that doing the Father's will sustains him more than physical food. Verse 32, I have food to eat you don't know about. They're like, who bought him lunch before we got back? Then he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. And then he points them to this really important truth. There is greater accomplishment, food, sustaining power, encouragement in verses 35 through 38. The harvest is down the road. No, it's right now. I have just spoken to this woman and there is going to be a harvest of souls and that sustains me far more than whatever you brought back from the marketplace. And I want you in time to know this too because he says, verse 38, I sent you to reap for what you haven't labored. Others have labored. You have entered into their labor. This isn't just for me. This is also for you. There is a sustaining power in seeing God's work that is greater than the joy you get from eating a sandwich, a loaf of bread, some fish, whatever it is. What God is doing here is far greater than what you think is being accomplished or what you don't understand is being accomplished. So people are not going to understand your priorities if you approach life in the way that Jesus does here. But that's okay. God keeps working anyway. Look at verses 28 through 30. The woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. The woman left her water pot. She's no longer focused on the physical needs. At the statement of Jesus, I am, she says, all right, I believe he's the Messiah. Forget about the water pot. That can wait. I'm going to go tell some people about this. Notice who she goes and talks to. I don't think I've ever noticed this in the story before. She goes and talks to the men. She doesn't go and talk to the women. Who are the men? The text does not specifically say, but I think it's pretty strongly implied, it's the five that were her husbands and they're now current families if they had them and the one she was living with who wasn't her husband, she says, come meet the Messiah. And what do they do? They go. Something about this woman whose life was broken and messed up and seemingly pointless and an unlikely convert and all of those sorts of things, when Jesus as the Messiah encounters her and says, I am and I offer you living water, something changes in her to the degree that she goes and speaks with such conviction that she compels all these other people to come back and meet Jesus with her. The disciples are off on a lunch break not doing the things that God has necessarily called them to do. And it's not that Jesus necessarily reproved them, but it's just the irony that while they're off getting lunch, and bringing them back for Jesus. That's their focus, their concern. Jesus is having an important spiritual conversation at a moment when he's tired and hungry and could have wanted to avoid people. And the net result of that conversation is she goes and has conversations to bring more people to meet Jesus. So who is the disciple in that moment? Right? Many of the Samaritans believed in Jesus because of her word. Verse 39. Because she testified, he told me all the things that I have done. 
What's the significance of that? They knew she was a sinner. Some random guy shows up and says, hey, I know you're a sinner, and this is how you're a sinner, and here's what God offers you. They're going to pay attention to it. If she comes and finally confesses, I'm a sinner, I own it, it's wrong, whatever, but here's the one who told me all about this, and here's the one who offers forgiveness, you should come meet him too. Sometimes we have this fear that people who trust Jesus shouldn't be around any of their friends that are unbelievers. Right? Come into the church. It's safe here. Don't be around all those people. They're going to drag you back into sin. Now, is there a temptation? Sure. If you're a drunk and you keep going back to the bar where you hung out with your buddies, is there a chance you're going to be tempted to be drunk again? Probably. If you're uh, lustful and you go hang out with your buddies at the strip club, is there a probability you're going to get tempted to sin again? Sure. If you're greedy and you go to the mall with your friends that greed consumed you and that was your life, are you going to be tempted to be greedy again? Probably. And yet, we should not encourage new converts to completely cut off all of their ties with their unbelieving friends because their passion and conviction and eagerness about the work God has immediately done in their lives can be a compelling witness to God's work that he wants to do in other people's lives. And to the extent that we have lost the passion of the reality of what God has saved us from in the course of our lives, so that in our conversations with unbelievers, we're kind of like, you know what, Jesus is good. Probably, probably, let me leave this with you. And, you know, if you want to think about it, that's great. But if you don't want to think about it, I don't want to offend you, even though I'll probably never see you again. So would you, would you be willing to take this? Maybe? Maybe? No? Okay, all right. She's like, hey, I'm a sinner. He told me all about it. He offered me living water. He's the Messiah sent from God. Come see him now. And they went. I don't, we shouldn't be fake or manufacture enthusiasm, but I do wonder sometimes if our struggle with sometimes seeing people come to God is because we kind of treat it as an add-on, not really important, if I can fit it in around everything else, if you can fit it in around everything else. Jesus doesn't come into your life to be fit in around everything else. He comes in to become your first and highest priority. And to the extent that he's not our first and highest priority and we don't stress that he should be to other people, they're not going to have much of a reason to say, eh, I can deal with that later. They asked Jesus to stay, verse 40, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And then they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. So if we were to apply that to our present day context, sometimes, and I just at the beginning of the service said, you know, here's church invitations, pass them out to people. Sometimes we say, well, if I can just get people to church, then they'll meet Jesus, right? What happened here is an unbeliever who met Jesus becomes a believer, goes and tells them about Jesus, they believe her word and start to trust in Jesus. Then they come and hear more things about Jesus and they basically say, this confirms because now we've heard it further and we understand it more. So as far as that goes, our first priority is not to get people to come to where we gather. Our first priority is to get people to meet Jesus. If they then come to where we gather, great, that should be a goal, but it's not the first and primary goal. And so when I say, here's a church invite, I, say, I would say, take that, because sometimes it sparks a conversation with somebody. Hey, 
Do you have a church to go to? We'd love to have you visit our church. Already go to such and such a church. Great. Do you know Jesus? Because we're like, okay, great. They go to a church. They must be good. We don't. I'm done. I'm out. No, if they go to a church, that doesn't guarantee they have a relationship with God. Because there are people sitting in churches every day who have no relationship with God. So we take it a step further. Hey, do you know Jesus? No. Okay. Might be a long shot, but do you want to get together sometime and we can talk about Jesus? I can tell you more about him. We got five minutes right now. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. But if we keep pushing the conversation forward, the, the likely path that we see in this story and so many others in the New Testament is, I want to introduce you to Jesus, then I introduce you to my other friends who are believers, then they become a part of what God's doing in a local church. It usually is not, I don't know Jesus, but I'll come to church when I could be sleeping in, going hunting, going to the beach, whatever. I, why would I do that when there's no reason for me to do it? But if they meet Jesus, then they're going to want to learn more about him, right? And that is a far easier bridge to what God is doing. God often calls us to seek out unlikely people. He may even do so at moments when the people that we pinned our hopes on, spiritually speaking, have wandered away, rejected the truth, or dashed all of our hopes. When you find that unexpected person, treat that person as an equal, a fellow sinner in need of God's grace, just like you were. And push through the hard moments of conversation. Don't give up as soon as somebody says something that you're not sure how to answer, or you think is going to be awkward, or whatever the excuse is that we come up with. Because at the end of the day, they're excuses, right? And then see God work. Maybe not exactly in this situation like he did at the woman at the well. It might not be that the person you talk to trusts Jesus, immediately goes and gets a whole bunch of other people, says, hey, let's, let's all learn about Jesus. But sometimes that does happen. And if we don't see it happening, whose power do we need to see it happen? We need to go to God and seek him out in prayer. God put us here to point people to him, to grow in our walk with him, yes, but to point other people to him. So how are you doing at that? Remember that it was you, and you will be more, made, more motivated to do this. So seek the unlikely by engaging them spiritually, then watch God work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these reminders from John 4 about the fact that you save sinners. And sometimes we think that you save people who try to get their lives in order and who are still a little bit sinners and just need you to kind of do the final polish and, and get everything looking nice. And the reality is you save people who are desperately sinners and then it's a lifelong process of cleaning up all of the other things that are lingering habits of sin and problems and all of that. And so, Lord, when we evaluate conversations with people, the people we're going to have conversations with. We pray that you would set aside the prejudices, the pride, the reasons that we come up with for not talking with them. This person is of this religion, and I know how all people in that religion think, so it's just going to be a waste of time. This person is of this ethnicity, and I just know how people in that ethnicity are, so it's going to be a waste of time. This person is of this social class. This person is of this clearly lifestyle. This person of the, We come up with all these reasons of why we shouldn't talk to that person. Because we don't have faith that you're a God who saves sinners. Grow our faith, Lord, both personally in our walk with you individually, but then also in the moments where we could see you work 
if we would step out in faith and you would grant our request. And so we pray that you'll continue to work in these ways that we would honor you. Amen. We're going to do now observing the Lord's table. So if I could have the men come forward.